0: I talked in Washington in 1963 about my dream, and we stood there in those high moments with high hopes. And over and over again, I've seen this dream turn into a nightmare.
1: 50 years after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, he remains one of the most vivid symbols of hope for racial unity in America. But that's not the way he was viewed in the last year of his life.
0: He has deserted the march, and Martin Luther King has left the march
1: I'm Stephen Smith from American Public Media. This is King's Last March, produced in cooperation with the Martin Luther King, Jr. Research and Education Institute at Stanford University. This is Riverside Church in New York City. It's a classic Gothic cathedral with light spilling down from stained glass windows and pointed arches reaching up into a vaulted ceiling. It's a formal, elegant place. It was here at Riverside Church that the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. gave one of the most radical and controversial speeches of his life. He called for an end to the Vietnam War.
0: Now it should be incandescently clear that no one who has any concern for the integrity and life of America today can ignore the present war. If America's soul becomes totally plausible, part of the autopsy must read Vietnam.
1: These words placed King well to the left of the American mainstream at the time. The anti-war movement was just gathering steam. Most Americans still supported fighting on to victory. King spoke here at Riverside Church on April 4th, 1967. Exactly one year later, he was assassinated. Now, if the somber-sounding Martin Luther King, who spoke at Riverside Church, isn't the towering orator you're used to hearing, stay with me. In the last year of his life, King was in many ways not the figure that both his followers and his opponents had come to know. He could still thunder from the pulpit, for sure, but his message grew more challenging and more pessimistic. Back in 1963, King stirred the nation with his I Have a Dream speech from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. In 1967, he lamented what had become of that dream.
0: Over and over again, I've seen this dream turn into a nightmare promising young black boys who are already facing discrimination at home. Going away and dying in disproportionate numbers in Vietnam. We are 11% of the population here and we are 22 and four tenths percent of the dying force in Vietnam.
1: In this podcast, we'll trace the final year of King's life. It was a time when a hostile U.S. government spied on King and neglected to warn him about death threats being made against him. A time when King followed his moral compass to an increasingly isolated and lonely place. And a time when his deep convictions about nonviolence and the need to help poor people led him to say things that many Americans found threatening. But King said, being morally wise sometimes meant being politically unwise.
0: And on some positions, cowardice asked the question, is it safe? Expediency asks the question, is it politic? Vanity asks the question, Is it popular? But conscience asks the question, Is it right? And there comes a time when a man must take a position that is neither safe nor politic nor popular, but he must take it because it is right. And that's where I stand today.
1: There were a lot of hard questions facing America in 1967 the country was beginning to feel the rumblings of a cultural earthquake. Anti-war movements, social justice movements, counterculture movements, they were all converging to assault the status quo. War power met flower power.
0: For weeks... U.S. planes, ships, and artillery have hammered the enemy emplacements attempting to knock out the powerful communist gun. Uh,
1: What what we're thinking about is a peaceful planet. We're not thinking about anything else. We're not thinking about any kind of power. We're not thinking about any of those kind of struggles. We're not thinking about revolution or war or any of that.
0: The whole black nation has to be put together as a black army. And we're going to walk on this nation. We're going to walk on this racist power structure. And we're going to say to the whole damn government, stick them up, motherfucker. This is a hold up. We come for what's
1: ours. In the spring of 1967, more than 400,000 U.S. troops were stationed in Vietnam. At least 100 American soldiers were dying each week in combat.
0: The Rung Set in the past few months has been bombed,
1: shelled, and napalm. And from time to time. I wish I could report to you that the conflict
0: is almost over. This I cannot do. We face more cost, more loss, and
1: more agony. President Lyndon Johnson had been escalating U.S. involvement in Vietnam since 1965. Martin Luther King had always opposed the war, but he'd been careful not to criticize it too sharply, because Johnson had been a crucial ally on civil rights and on efforts to fight poverty. But as Johnson poured more troops into Vietnam, King felt compelled to speak out.
0: Negroes and whites are forced to fight in brutal solidarity on the battlefields of Vietnam. And yet, those same fighting pals probably won't be able to live on the same block when they get back to Chicago and Detroit.
1: Martin Luther King's speeches against the Vietnam War drew swift public reaction, much of it damning. Newspaper editorials chastised King for stepping outside his field of expertise, civil rights. You have to remember, in 1967, public opinion had not yet turned against the Vietnam War. Historian Michael Honey wrote a book about King's last year of life called Going Down Jericho Road. The New York Times, for instance, virtually called him a traitor, saying he had undercut his usefulness to his people and his country by making that speech. So he was roundly condemned, and within the black community, too, by many black leaders.
0: One of the things that people were concerned about was that Martin Luther King was taken away from the domestic issues by taking a stand against Vietnam and getting involved in the, quote, peace movement.
1: Bernard Lafayette worked closely with King at the civil rights organization King led, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the SCLC.
0: But Martin Luther King came to um, the conclusion that you could not really get our country to focus on domestic issues as long as Vietnam was capturing the headlines, and that's where a lot of our resources were going, and people were all caught up in the, in the war. We spend approximately $500,000 to kill every enemy soldier in Vietnam while We spend
1: only $53 per person uh, in the so-called war against poverty. uh, In spring of 67, King spoke on a radio chat show in New York.
0: If we can spend uh, approximately $35 billion to fight uh, what I consider an unjust, ill-considered war in Vietnam and about $20 billion to put a man on the moon then our nation has the resources to spend billions of dollars to put God's children on their own two feet right here on
1: Earth. King came to another crucial conclusion. As one who urged nonviolence at home, he could not remain silent about American aggression abroad.
0: And I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghettos without having first spoken clearly To the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government.
1: Some of King's staffers at the SCLC doubted his decision to speak against the government and the war. Dorothy Cotton directed educational programs for the organization. She says King was pained by the criticism he got.
0: But I saw this uh, pushing Martin into a kind of reflective mode to really think about um, his own commitment, not in any way doubting it. But if he if he doubted it, he came out of it saying, and this is a direct quote, if I am the last lone voice speaking for nonviolence, that I will do. Now there those who say you are a civil rights leader? What are you doing speaking out? You should stay in your field. Well, I wish you would go back and tell them for me. Before I became a civil rights leader, I was a preacher of the gospel. When my father and others put their hands on my head and ordained me to the Christian ministry, it was a commission. Something said to me that the fire of truth is shut up in my bones. And when it burns me, I must tell it.
1: When King spoke that fire of truth about Vietnam, it drew criticism, but also admiration, especially from people in the blossoming peace movement. In May 1967, King spoke to a crowd of 7,000 people on the campus of the University of California, Berkeley. Dr. King, will you be our candidate in 1968?
0: (laughs) Well, I must say that... uh, It's very kind of you to even express such uh, concern and make such a request. Now, I do not feel that I'm presidential timber. (laughs) I am committed to uh, trying to do this job of civil rights and this job of building wherever we can more opposition to the war in Vietnam, and this would certainly I take all of my time, and I would rather think of myself as one trying desperately to be the conscience of all of the political parties uh, rather than being a political candidate, whether it's for...
1: Whether or not King could actually win the 1968 election, such speculation was deeply threatening to the incumbent Democrat, President Lyndon Johnson. LBJ was furious that King had broken ranks with him over the war. King's longtime nemesis, FBI director J. Edgar Hoover, encouraged the president's anger. Hoover's FBI began spying on King and the SCLC back in 1962. Journalist Nick Kotz wrote a book about LBJ and King called Judgment Days. He says the bureau suspected that King and his organization were influenced by communists.
0: J. Edgar Hoover was sending Johnson virtually a message a day telling him that King was a communist, that King's personal life uh, was a mess. He had all kinds of extramarital affairs. And up until the Riverside speech in April of 67, Johnson never did anything to uh, strike out at King. With that speech, Johnson began to lash out at King. But privately, he never, ever did it publicly. And he was listening to Hoover's poison with a more attentive ear. I just got word that Martin Luther King will give a press conference at 11 o'clock this morning in
1: Atlanta. In this telephone call between Hoover and Johnson, which the president secretly recorded, the FBI director passed along intelligence from the agency's wiretapping operation against King. Hoover said King was expecting racial violence to break out in Chicago. That's
0: a substance of information. we got that highly confidentially over the technicals.
1: King's massive FBI file contains no credible evidence that he was influenced by communists. But Hoover was a racist. And he viewed King's growing activism on both Vietnam and poverty as a threat to the government. So the FBI continued tapping King's phones, bugging his house, and in many other ways, trailing and reporting on King. Andrew Young said King and his colleagues in the movement knew they were being followed.
0: Whenever we checked into a hotel, we always saw the little cars with the guys. And they were always driving, you know, two, three-year-old Plymouths. It was not hard to find them. Quite often we found bugs in the hotel rooms and we never moved them.
1: Young says they even found microphones hidden in church pulpits where King was scheduled to speak.
0: I can remember Ralph Abernathy pulling one out and said, Little doohickey, I don't know whether you're playing in Lyndon Johnson's office or J. Ed Hoover's office, but I want the whole world to know uh, that we're going to get the right to vote and we're going to be free. Uh, and then he put it on top of the pulpit rather than under the bottom, because he said, I want you to get this plane.
1: For years, Hoover's FBI had been running a smear campaign against King. The Bureau circulated reports about communists in King's camp and rumors about King's sex life. By 1967, about all King could do was try to ignore the threatening cloud of Hoover's skullduggery. King had much more difficult things on his mind. Next time on King's Last March.
0: The rioting began. Small gangs of Negroes roamed the streets, breaking into shops and liquor stores.
1: Fourteen were arrested. By the summer of 1967, simmering frustrations with the progress of racial justice boiled over into a collective rage across the country. And King would find himself in the middle of it. King's Last March is a production of American Public Media and APM Reports. Support for King's Last March comes from the Olseth Family Foundation, working to improve community through support of the arts, education, the environment, and the underserved.